0: In this episode of Kaddish, we're talking about chosen family, the people we meet in life who become our family, the more than friends, who are a point in our constellation of support, the people that we plan our life with. For many, chosen family is not a luxury, but rather, it is a means of survival. Finding the people with whom we can plan a life, rely on for material support, find safety and protection from family of origin, if need be. For many, chosen family is a means of queer survival. Armistead Maupin wrote, There's biological family, and then there's logical family. For some of us, we get to have biological family in that logical family. And for others, we find sisters, brothers, siblings, uncles, mothers, children over the course of our lives. This is not a novel idea human beings have been building affinity groups of family units without blood connection forever. And our godparents who raise us, our aunties who manage to keep the world spinning. All of this is family. But we're responsible to our family not just in life but after it too. In March 2016, my mother's best friend Lisa died. Lisa was my bonus mom, my other mother, who cared for me and loved me for 20 years. I am her daughter. This year has been profoundly shaped for me by how we have mourned Lisa. In this episode, listeners have shared their stories about mourning chosen family to help us start to build out communal ritual and to help us find status when we bury our dearest ones. Amidst all the interviews I did, a few questions were loud and clear. How do we honor the chosen family of the dead while not claiming too much status from biological family? How do we tell the stories of our loved ones, who holds our legacies when our chosen family knows us best? I first started thinking about how we mourn chosen family when I was in a class with my teacher, Rabbi Vivi Mayer.
1: My name is Vivi Mayer, and I'm a Reconstructionist rabbi, and I'm on the faculty of the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College.
0: The class was on the Mishnah Torah, written by Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon in the 12th century, and the Mishnah Torah is a crib notes, handbook, compendium of Jewish law. We were studying the specific portion where he discusses rules for mourning, but for a whole semester. Obviously, I loved it. We discussed the concept of Sheva Krovim, the seven close ones, dear ones, consecrated relationships that are obligated to mourn. They are a mother, a father, a brother, a sister, a son, a daughter, or a spouse. These are the seven relationships that mourn when someone dies, that take on the status of mourner, the ritual obligations. So I asked Vivi, what would it mean to designate who one Sheva Krovim were in life? Who were the seven, or more, consecrated relationships? What would it look like if our living wills named just who those dearest ones were to us, that said, these are the people who have kept me afloat in life, they should be afforded the status of mourner, that we should sit them in the front pew, that we should send them a floral arrangement, a bagel tray, give them days off work.
1: I have felt so strongly about people in my life who have died and whom I like automatically relegate myself to third circle, fourth circle away from the center, I've sometimes felt disrespectful like being too upset in the face of the people who for whom it's their primary loss.
0: The issue I had in Vivi's class is about exactly this. What happens when chosen family dies? What about those who are feeling grief but aren't named as mourners?
1: In the Jewish picture grief and mourning are not identical. Because grief is an emotion, and mourning is a, a status and obligation. Vivi
0: pushed me in class to think about the difference between mourning and grief, that mourning is a set of practices we do to honor the dead and afford status to the living. And grief, she teaches, is something that anyone can feel, anytime.
1: Store Girl by Jerry Spinelli, which is a young adult novel about a, a high school girl who feels everything very, very deeply, and cries at funerals. And she goes to all these life events in the community that she has no connection to. And there's this one um, one incident in the book where she's at a funeral and she's weeping. And the people whose funeral it is or look at her. And who is that? Who is that? And, and they start to resent her. And what are you carrying on about? You don't even know her.
0: Stargirl is moved by other people's loss. She cries at funerals for people she doesn't even know. And there's anger directed at her, or anyone who does this. Someone who primary mourners feel doesn't deserve status of the heartbroken. So rather, there's a purpose, according to Vivi, of designating mourners.
1: The obligation of mourning starts with the obligation to tend to the body and make sure that there's a proper burial, respectful burial, and then the, after the burial, the obligation is to, um, to sit shiva for the week and then to mourn for the month. And if it's a mother or father, then there's a, the obligation carries for a full year. And what I learned when I was in mourning for my dad, I read some things that talked about this is about honoring your parents, that to be in mourning the full year versus the month is a sign of honor.
0: Independent of how one feels. If they've taken on halacha, if they've taken on this obligation to Jewish law, they must perform the rites for a karov, a close one, independent of if they feel grief or not. Vivi claims that within a system of obligation, in a tight knit society, everyone is looked after and we're held to our obligations.
1: The whole notion of these shevachrovim are these are the people you have. And in a society that works the way societies are supposed to work. These immediate families are supposed to be the people you take care of and who take care of you. And we know that that's not so because parents and children don't always take care of each other and brothers and sisters and siblings are sometimes the people who hurt each other the most. And then it becomes so very complicated to be commanded to honor them, to be commanded to take care of them. That's so where all the pain of the, the life comes up.
0: A familial connection is not always enough. Not taking care of another one in life makes being obligated to care for one another in death that much more painful.
1: Oh, now I need to take care of you. Forget it. Or, well, I mean, I have an obligation to do this and it feels like the most counterintuitive thing in the world and we're going to do it and see it could facilitate healing to have to live into an obligation for an estranged parent or sibling rather than saying, well, it's the obligation that's foisted on me and not my chosen um, relationship.
0: So where does this concept of a carove even come from? It's actually a classic rabbinic extrapolation from one law about a very specific idea in Torah that's then expanded out to a much larger idea. Classic. The kohen, someone of priestly descent in Jewish tradition, must remain ritually pure at all times, as they have to be ready to enter into the temple. This means, amongst other prohibitions, that kohanim cannot have contact with the dead. But there's an exemption made in Torah. Namely, that for a kohen's siblings, children, parents, or spouse, They are not required to stay away from the dead. So the rabbis get this concept of Sheva Krovim, saying these seven consecrated relationships that a priest is allowed to come close to mean that all people are obligated to honor these seven relationships. But then in later discussion of Sheva Krovim, we also get this idea of a mate mitzvah, That is an unidentified person who has died and is found in the middle of nowhere by the side of the road, with no one to claim them or be obligated to their burial and accommodations.
1: Even someone who's a kohen who is not allowed to become ritually impure must become ritually impure to deal with a mate mitzvah, who's either uh, someone that they know or even an anonymous mate mitzvah. You you need to do that. So that is you know actually juxtaposed to the seven. Krovim. The seven Krovim are the people you are most associated with. And a mate mitzvah from whom you have similar obligations is someone who you have, are not associated with at all, but who has nobody.
0: So studying the shava Krovim, hearing that obligation is independent of desire to mourn or feelings of grief, makes me feel distance from the text and my tradition. Am I supposed to believe that I should, like Stargirl was supposed to, cry in the back of the funeral? What about when I have an obligation to my chosen family? The mate mitzvah offers us an entry. When we find each other and create networks of logical family, sometimes that's out of necessity. We take care of each other because there is no one else to. We find each other by the side of the road. Does this not elevate a mate mitzvah to status of karov? Could we not then use that obligation out of necessity to understand why we create chosen family in the first place.
1: In addition to the Sheva Krovim, there's also a notion in in Jewish custom that for a a student to a, a teacher has that relationship of child to parent. So for a special student to be behaving as a mourner for a teacher, that is acceptable. A
0: teacher, who is seen in Jewish tradition as giving their students life by teaching them Torah, is elevated to the same set of obligations that we might have to a parent. Meaning when your teacher dies, you mourn them, you are obligated to them, as if they were your parent. I know that there is room in Jewish tradition to elevate the status of those of us who have grief to the status of mourner of chosen family, because it is so often that our chosen family are the ones who grant us life. We'll spend the next hour hearing stories from listeners about their Krovim and how they've touched their lives.
2: Umbre brazilor tremurau, <laughs> iar eu, de de de
0: Rebecca called into Kaddish right before Passover with her story of the Hornsteins and Ornsteins, two families who built their lives together for generations and who found each other after devastation. Rebecca holds stories from multiple families into one legacy, one family story. She offers us an answer to the question, who holds our legacies when our chosen family know us best?
2: When my grandfather was growing up, his best friend was named Paul Ornstein. Uh, My grandfather's name is Stephen
0: Hornstein. The story goes that the Ornsteins and Hornsteins had a generational friendship. Her grandfathers were best friends. Their fathers before them were best friends their fathers before them, and on and on. Their lives were filled with gentle mischief in Hungary and the bonds of childhood friendship. The Holocaust devastated both their families, and both Rebecca's grandfather and Paul managed to get back to their small town after the war.
2: You know, they were just kind of trying to look for any semblance of the life they had had before. Um, And Paul always told the story that he you know, was, was searching around, trying to find anyone he knew. He, he went back to the synagogue in their town, um, and the first person he saw was his friend Stephen, my, my grandfather. Um, and I think often about how intense that moment must have been uh, for them to, you know, be going back to your life that had been completely destroyed, not knowing if anyone had survived, um, and seeing someone you loved, seeing your um, your childhood friend. So, kind of in the in between time, they had um both found their respective spouses, my grandmother Lucia and Paul's wife Anna. Um and the four of them uh went to medical school together in Heidelberg, Germany, and uh immigrated to the United States together and ended up living two houses away from each other um in Cincinnati, Ohio and raising their families together so through this kind of chosen family um i'm really lucky to be part of this kind of like extended hornstein ornstein clan you know they had such a deep love for each other and in a lot of ways they were very like old school european men um and kind of carried that attitude with them but with what they had been through and um their friendship with each other uh, made them both incredibly loving men. You know, I think they taught kind of all of us how to be able to show love and show emotion and how to not really not take any piece of your life for granted. And taught that, you know, friendship is a really deep thing and can actually help you survive and help give you strength and rebuild. So Paul passed away a few months ago, and I'm still, you know, trying to figure out what that gap in my life And that loss looks like my grandfather died when I was 17 and he had had Alzheimer's that was pretty advanced for the last couple of years of his life. And so Paul was really the one who I was able and really fortunate to have more of an adult relationship with. Um, And he was the one who who I think connected me to stories of where I came from and to the past. And he was also kind of got to have a type of relationship with him. That I just didn't get to have with my grandfather because he died when I was too young, but kind of things like disagreeing about politics, <laughs> um, navigating that with like a grandparently figure, um, and you know talking about complicated pieces of his survival and rebuilding his life, the role of forgiveness and the role of revenge and all of these things he was still thinking about and working through late in his life that, that I just didn't get to have with my own grandfather, but but also kind of got to know my grandfather in a more complicated adult way through Paul. I'm still mourning that, but still hold on to this like learning deep inside me about how powerful love and friendship and chosen family are.
0: The next story wrestles with a question I have heard in every story of mourning chosen family. The question being, do I count? Am I enough? Do I get to mourn? How long am I allowed to mourn? When are we able to be a Karov, a dear one, and not just a griever from afar? And a note, this story contains mentions of depression and suicide. If you'd like to skip ahead, just join us in five minutes.
3: My name is Noga Newberg, and I'm from Philadelphia.
0: Josh is Noga's half-brother, 20 years older than her. He struggled with treatment-resistant depression and took his own life after battling depression for 20 years. Josh died 10 years ago. I, I did say "cottage" for him.
3: I did feel like he was my brother, but he was so distant, both in age and in life experience. And we had so little common space, um, common time together. That proved to be really hard um, to figure out how am I supposed to mourn for him or how am I supposed to feel about it it was distant and I was you know I was I was a kid I felt obligated right to call him because he's my he's my kin not because um we had this intense connection like you do with other people that are your chosen family like um I don't think I chose to you know work on the connection I was just like this is my family like regardless of he's half or full brother, like he's my father's son. And I think a lot of what I've come back to is that relationship. In the days after his death and Shiva and even Shloshim, I felt status as a mourner. I was there with my father. I was there at the Shiva house all week. I didn't, I don't think I even questioned it. But I think as time has passed and I've needed to create my own ritual, that somehow I've felt less status. A lot of people have asked me, well, like, why are you making such a big deal about this? Like, Why is this so relevant to you right now, I think is a more generous way of saying it. I think I'm probably struggling with this status question. The idea of writing a letter resonated um, as a way to work through the grief. Um, and one of the things that I did a lot of, which was really amazing and helpful, um, was a good, dear friend of my brother's, recorded all of the memorial ceremonies. So the eulogies and um, literally everyone that spoke, there were several memorials, you know, at his, at his the university he taught at, at his elementary school. You know, when you're like grieving, you don't really hear this. But it was there that I learned that he had been depressed for, you know, 20 years. But I did talk about all this in the letter. I mean, I just i you know I processed um my my feelings of of anger what what he left us with, and I tried to remember I tried just to use it as like a zecher what what could I hold on to? what could I grasp um that I could pass down and there weren't that many but but there they are in print you know, and saved and ready to be passed down. And it wasn't something that, like, I obsessed over, I polished, or, you know, I edited and revised. I just wrote, and that felt right, you know. It felt like a real release. It really did. I don't want to say closure, because I don't think there's closure to this kind of grief, but it felt like a mark. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like a landmark in my grief or something. The mystery of it is a real challenge the silence of you know it's not like he was silent about his depression but just there's something silent about depression even if you're open about it even if you write a suicide note even if you tell your sister that you're going to commit suicide there's something unknown right like I don't understand your sadness or I don't understand why you're telling me this now or I guess that's what I mean by silence this is like unknowing. How can I understand? So how can I connect to you? So if I can't connect to you, how am I supposed to grieve? Yeah. Now there's, I have to write a letter. I have to figure out like, how are my kids, like I, there cannot be a mystery about him. I like, don't want a blank spot. I'm so clear about that. You know, my kids will know like, I feel like sooner rather than later. About, they know why he died. I, they have a sense. But, like, he will not be a mystery. So I need to know, like, who he was to me so that, like, I can pass that on.
0: The next story is a question mark and a semicolon. It asks us, How do we mourn chosen family when biological family is also bereft? It asks us, how do we continue developing relationships with our dear departed after they die? My name is Sarah, and I'm calling from Oakland, California. Sarah met Tyler away from home when they were both at a high school program in England while she was crouched in a stairwell
4: trying to call home at 10 o'clock at night. We spent that summer being friends, hanging out with other people, 16-year-olds do. We stayed in touch through the magic of AOL, A-I-M. He'd pop in and out of my life. He wasn't steady, and yet he was. He was someone who I cared about deeply, and someone I knew would be in my life for a long time, even if we were trying to escape each other sometimes. Tyler passed away under strange circumstances. He lived in a fairly rural area, or at least that's what I think growing up in cities, in a beautiful, beautiful town called Knoxville, Tennessee. He died because he had been drinking, or or maybe he was just tired or distracted, but his car crashed on a very thin road, a road I saw months later. And he fell into a, a lake or, or a river. The coroner thought that he died instantly. It was New Year's Eve. The next day, I was with someone I had just met, and we were at a coffee shop in the middle of Cambridge, and my friend, someone I'm still friends with, called and said, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, and I didn't know what was going on. It was New Year's Day, I was tired, and I said, what are you talking about? I'm happy to hear from you, what are you talking about? And she said, Tyler's gone. I'm here to tell my story because sometimes I feel like I shouldn't be allowed to miss him. Our friendship was often complicated. It was not always close. I often feel like I shouldn't be allowed to mourn him. I shouldn't be allowed to miss him. I suppose you could say we loved each other. We were friends. We talked. We stayed friends for years after we met. but. It often felt like he was keeping me at arm's length, like there was distance between us. We'd send mail back and forth. He had this weird obsession. He always had to send Christmas gifts. I can't tell you how grateful I am that he always sent Christmas gifts. There's something really magical about having a little piece of someone to hold on to when they die, and you don't know if you're allowed to miss them. I think the hardest part about mourning Chosen family is that they often have real family who love them. We don't go through life thinking that we're only going to have our mother and father, siblings, cousins. We know that we'll have friends. We know that being social and knowing lots of people is an important part of getting through a frankly difficult life, but I mean his parents, they're, that was their only kid. And they were devastated, and I got that. In fact, even recording this feels a little strange. But I just want to validate how, no matter how you love someone, no matter how much they loved you, or how often they were in your life, missing them, grieving them, and letting yourself, first and foremost, is really important. I vividly remember sobbing at my desk one day. Out of nowhere, a song had come out of my Spotify playlist that was about loving a brother. And, and I don't even think it was the content. I think it was just the gloominess and the fact that I had sent Tyler a mixtape and that was the only song that he liked on the whole thing, that snob. And it started playing months after he died and I just let myself feel that he was gone. I let myself feel his death. Tyler was a brilliant, strange genius. He was smart above anything else. He made weird choices. He liked to homebrew, and he really loved the Pacific Northwest. He was one of those guys who would wear shorts and sandals in the snow. He was kind of peculiar. But for whatever reason, he loved me when I was really strange, and I loved him. Sometimes I feel like he's helping me, watching me. Sometimes I feel like he's just playing pranks on me, messing with the wind or the noises. One time I was convinced that he moved my laundry around. I think the one thing I wish I had had during my morning was more people around me. I wish I had known his friends. I wish I had had more of a network of people who who could share stories and and I'm grateful that part of my mourning and part of saying goodbye was being able to actually go to his hometown and meet his parents and spend some time seeing the things that he saw and doing the things that he loved to do. Pablo Neruda is actually my favorite poet and the reason I love him is because Tyler gave me a book of his poetry long ago. Now I have three copies including the one from his personal library a gift from his parents. I'm grateful to have all these little things, all these little tidbits of someone who I often don't feel ownership over. Tyler died too young and while it brought me closer to the friend, the friend who originally called to let me know, it also was the first time I lost someone who I was really truly close to, who shouldn't have died, not like that, not that age. He was a really good person. I'll miss him, and you're allowed to, and I'm allowed to.
0: I met with Meryl in the middle of a rainstorm in March to hear them talk about their Karov, Ava. And their telling of Ava's life did one of the things that we can do when we honor our Corovium, which is simply telling the story of their lives and deaths. We'll hear about how Meryl mourned, including a lasting tribute.
5: My name is Meryl. I live in Philadelphia. When I was in high school, I had a best friend uh, named Ava, who was my best friend for, like, all of high school, like, we met freshman year. Ava was very cool and also not cool. (laughs) Uh, you know, like, many people in high school, when we met freshman year, she's really not not cool, but really cool to me, and, uh, we were, like, musical theater nerds together, and she's a cartoonist, and an artist, and a soprano, and a poet, and so many things. She was, um, you know, like many high schoolers, like, exploring all of the ways to be creative in the second half of high school, she got really into, like, punk music and punk stuff and um, made friends with all the crust punks living uh, in St. Mark's Place and, like, just befriended the blue mohawk dude. And she started wearing, like, a lock necklace and safety pins as earrings. <laughs> Ava passed away in the middle of our senior year of high school, and I mourned very intensely for about seven years. Um, and it's now been eight years,
0: I guess. The safety pin became a symbol for Ava. Following her sudden death from meningitis, Merrill had all classmates come to school wearing safety pins. Students drew it on their hands, wore it on their clothes, in their ears. It was everywhere. And only this past,
5: this past January, um, after thinking about it for six years, I got a tattoo, um, like a memorial tattoo, and I finally was able to stop actively mourning, um, because, like many people, I think I was afraid to stop mourning. That like if I stopped mourning, I would stop remembering and valuing her and what she meant in my life. And now that I have a physical reminder that isn't going anywhere, I know that I don't have to hold it in my heart all the time uh, to quite that level because I'm holding it on my thigh (laughs) all the time. Even when I don't think about it, it's still there. But it gave me permission. It was my way of giving myself permission to start the next step of grief, whatever that is. And The summer before Ava passed away, she had gone to a pre-college program. And she made friends with this girl, Jenna, and the program. And she was, like, so excited about this friend. Like, she was telling me all about it all summer long. She was like, you have to meet Jenna. You're going to love her. She's so great. And we didn't meet until after Ava died. I sort of had a feeling that at some point Jenna would um, be a part of me getting this tattoo. And we had talked about it. And then one day Jenna posted that she had gotten an apprenticeship at a tattoo shop on the Lower East Side, which is where Ava and I last hung out.
0: Meryl got the tattoo the same weekend as Ava's yard site, January 9th.
5: Like, you're supposed to stop saying the Mourner's Kaddish after, like, a year, apparently? I did it for, like, three or four years. Or something like that. Like, I did it, like, all through college. I didn't even really know what the timeline was supposed to be. 30 days. Right. And, like, um... I think I stopped after the tattoo mm. which was a big thing like in Jewish tradition I mean you're not supposed to get tattoos it was like I was stuck in mourning and I was stuck in a place between stages of life um, my, my like senior directing thesis We like made a play, and it was called "Unstuck," and it was about grief and like trying to imagine someone into that someone's still real after they're gone, because they're alive in our imaginations and in our work and in our life, and that it makes them real. You know, they're still really there. Like Ava's really had a presence in my life, and her presence in my life has now been there for more time in her death than in her life, because we only were friends for four years before she died, and now I've been mourning her for eight. So I've been mourning her for twice as long as we were friends. Uh, Which is really painful to realize, you know. I think I was seen by my community, actually, in the way that this affected me. and I like When I went to speak with teachers and stuff about it They I don't know I just it, Somehow I think I felt like Kind of understood in that I was one of the people who was like On the inner circles of this And I, I think her family Like respected my grief for her And didn't feel it impinged But that it added Like that it was a show of my love for her there was some moment after either maybe after we put up the gravestone where we were like back at her mom's apartment in Queens and her grandfather was there and I don't know. I'm a, I experience emotions in a really big way. I'm a big emotion person and around Ava I, cry very heavily like it's weeping like real loud I'm a loud person and I weeped very loudly when we put up her gravestone. and then after when we back went back to the apartment I was laughing very loudly and her grandfather sort of thanked me for that um that my weeping was how everyone else was feeling uh And he was like, you laugh as big as you cry. And you should keep doing that. I think it's hard also that Ava um, never got to be an adult. And that I do. It's been very central in my life that this happened. I mean, when it happened, I was like... 17. And... Um, I just remember thinking, like, I'm not a kid anymore. But it's hard, because I... You know. I'm now almost 26. And she's still 17. Uh, and that affects our ability to have a friendship still, right? <laughs> and the, like teenage girl friendship magic that we made like there's something really magical and sacred about that kind of relationship um and so important of like two teenage girls telling each other how great they are and how amazing and wonderful they are and like honoring each other's creativity and passion very upset with her for dying
1: Hmm. it's
5: not her fault sure Uh, but i was upset about that Mm -hmm.
0: definitely you know how dare you how dare you not cool
5: not cool not cool she
0: left yeah she left you yeah she left i do not fear in the valley of death And shadow I teach myself To release what I cannot control May the source of life Bless us with freedom and peace Ease my beloved soul Ease my beloved soul Are you still with me? Are you sure? Take a beat to find your breath, huh? There's something so deep inside me that just did not want to make this episode. To have to hear these stories and sit in this pain. Because how dare we risk enough to love someone, to make more family, and then they have the nerve to leave us? And how the hell are we supposed to make sense of what we meant to each other once they're gone? Vivi is used to my complaining and railing by this point, and so when I brought this to her, she offered me this poem. It's called Elegy for Jane, my student thrown by a
1: horse. I remember the neck curls, limp and damp as tendrils, and her quick look, a sidelong pickerel smile, and how, once startled into talk, the light syllables leaped for her, and she balanced in the delight of her thought. A wren happy, tail into the wind, her song trembling the twigs and small branches, the shade sang with her, the leaves, their whispers turned to kissing, and the mold sang in the bleached valleys under the rose. Oh, when she was sad, she cast herself down into such a pure depth, even a father could not find her, scraping her cheek against straw, stirring the clearest water. My sparrow, you are not here, waiting like a fern making a spiny shadow. The sides of wet stones cannot console me, nor the moss wound with the last light. Or maybe nor the moss wound with the last light. If only I could nudge you from this sleep, my maimed darling, my skittery pigeon. Over this damp grave I speak the words of my love. I with no rights in this matter Neither father nor lover
0: It's not about whether there are words to explain how we feel About our chosen family after they've died And I don't think it has to be about whether we are obligated To take on status of mourner If we can learn one thing together May it be that someone who is family to you in life Can still be that person in death The best friend who will be forever 17. The other mother you can't quite explain to a stranger. There might not be enough words to explain the nuance and joy and catastrophe and silence of their life and their death. Naming them as family, or something like it, is a really good start. When The last time I heard you say you love me I close my eyes and you appear in holy company The grief has not ceased since I lost my goodbye God, if I am to suffer, at least tell
2: me why
0: A huge thanks to everyone who shared their stories in this episode Thank you to my teacher, Rabbi Vivi Mayer, to Rebecca, Noga, Meryl, and Sarah. Thanks to Alex Stern, producer extraordinaire, for her scripting support on this episode. Thanks to Ariel Wolpe and Mariangela Mechai for their beautiful setting and interpretation of Psalm 23 in English and Romani. We'll post the full song online thanks to clara lufton for transcription chelsea noriega for site design jb brager for graphics sid weissman for big dream support and the jewish federation of greater hartford kaddish is coming to the end of our season we're still running our fundraiser at bit.ly slash kaddish podcast a huge thanks to everyone who has already donated we're in the home stretch and could so use your financial support check it out. There's some really sweet perks. If you want to get in touch with me about this episode or any other questions, you can email me, ariana, A-R-I-A-N-A, at Podcast.com, or tweet at us, at Kaddish podcast, or find us on Facebook. We want to hear from you. This episode is dedicated to the memories of Lisa, Paul, Stephen, Josh, Tyler, Eva, and all of our crew. I'm Ariana Cat this is cottage when is the last time i heard you say you love me i close my eyes and you appear in holy company the grief has not ceased since i lost my goodbye god if i am to suffer at least tell